If you guys have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. And we're, today we'll be reading out of John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Uh, we are finally, after four weeks in the Nicodemus story, we're finally past that. Uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Today we're reading John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And what we see is a man that is faced with a temptation. But what I love about this passage is that he responds to, to this temptation with a model that we should live out as well. Notice it. John 3.22 says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been in prison. Therefore there arose a discussion, or heated debate, literally in the original language, on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and they said, Teacher or Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase or grow, but I must decrease or lessen. Amen. Uh, bow with me. Heavenly Father, uh, what an honor it is to serve and to worship a God that displays his love through the cross and his victory through the resurrection. Um, Lord, we are here this morning not for the sake of appearances or to be entertained. We are here this morning to worship you, to fellowship together, and to hear from your word. Lord, I just pray for us this morning, those that are here and those that are tuning in online. I pray that we would be humble enough to receive what you have for us through your word this morning. Lord, I just thank you for the privilege it is just to unpack the scripture and to be part of this church. Lord, and I just pray, I pray that the Spirit of God through the work, through the words of your word would move in the hearts and minds of the people that are here and that are hearing this and that it would be so engaging and intoxicating that we would take the message of the gospel in your word in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Lord, that we would not be satisfied with just hearing something that was pretty from the pulpit or singing great songs, but Lord, that it would drive us to shine the light of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is my prayer. Lord, be with us. I pray that we would be humble enough to hear from your word and that it would change our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for you. Uh, how many of you have ever uh, played on a sports team before? Okay. All right. Most of us. All right. So I want you to think about your favorite coach. Pretend you are that coach, your favorite one. Then let me ask you the question, what is the one thing that you as a coach require from each player? What is the one thing that you require as a coach from each player? The same thing a coach requires, God requires. As you may or may not know, I graduated from Grissom High School. All right, any other Grissom grads in here? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think I got a thumbs down in the back. Okay, must be a graduate from Huntsville High School. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I graduated from uh, the cesspool, which was the old Grissom building, if you remember that. I persevered through that. My uh, freshman year of high school, we still had the original carpet. Now, it went turn, 
it went turned green from the original color of brown. And I'm not sure who thought it was a good idea to put carpet down where 2,000 students would walk for the next 30 years. I'm not sure. If you were that person that decided that, I'm sorry if I offended you, uh, I was told that if you would drop a cracker on the carpet that you would see little bugs come up and eat it. I'm not trying to gross you out. Um, There were no bathroom stalls. There were no soap dispensers. And the inside of the stalls did not have pleasant things to say. I'll just say it that way. But in my graduating class, there was a star athlete. He was the man on campus, and he knew it. He was a a man among boys. He was the kind of guy that looked like he flunked kindergarten ten times, okay? Uh, I was told that he could dunk a basketball in middle school. I could never dunk a basketball, okay? But I remember his sophomore year of high school, he was all-state football and all-state basketball. He was kind of the man, the stud on campus, But his senior year, the basketball coach, I remember very well, the basketball coach kicked him off the team. The the basketball coach kicked off the best player on the team for one simple reason. It was the issue of pride. That this 17-year-old young man simply would not listen to the coach, he would not practice, he would not follow instruction, that this 17-year-old man had so much pride and so much arrogance that he would not be humble enough to listen to the coach. If you're a coach, what is the one thing that you require from all players? The same thing that a coach would require is what God requires from each of us here today. What is the one thing that God requires from all of his servants? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you want to serve him, if you want to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, if you want to live for him, now if you're just here not to live for him, well, it probably is going to be a whoop, whoop, right out the ear. But if you want to live for Jesus, if you want to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, what is the one thing that he requires of all of his servants? Obedience, and I would even deduce that down to even humility. That we would be humble enough to listen and to obey the commandments of the scripture. Now I looked up humility in the dictionary. Humility is defined as the quality or condition of being humble. That it wasn't helpful. But humble means this. It means not proud or arrogant. Modest, courteously, respectful. The famous theologian John Stott says this, Pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. C.S. Lewis takes it even further. He says, The utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all those are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. The devil's most effective and destructive tool is pride. So, so catch this. The opposite of pride is humility. And if pride is the utmost evil, and if humility is our greatest friend, if that is the requirement of God to be his servants, then how do we then, how do we avoid, uh, a quite simple question, how do we avoid pride and remain humble? That in a world that values pride, in a world that values that I am greater than other people, in a world of pride, how do we avoid being that, and how do we then remain humble? Our answer today 
is in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Today I'm just going through verse 30 because there's just, quite frankly, just too much there. But what we see is a man named John the Baptist who has, by every stretch of the imagination, has every reason to be prideful in his ministry, in his purpose, in all of the things that he is doing. He has every right to be prideful, but he avoids that with very simple ideas. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 3. And as I mentioned, we'll unpack verses 22 through 30. And quickly to quickly outline this passage, if you could see this passage, it breaks down into three main sections. You have the context... You have the context of verses 22 through 24. You have the conflict of verses 25 through 26. And then you have John's counter in verses 27 through 36. So then notice the context of our story. Notice what it says in verses 22 through 24. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Notice, I just want you to notice... There he was spending time with him and baptizing. And then notice this next part. Verse 20. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized for John had not been thrown into prison. Now, uh, verses 22 through 24 on the surface seem rather boring. Right, That if you're reading through the Bible on a yearly basis or reading through this section, it's very easy for us just to kind of skip over probably one of the most important parts of the entire passage. Because verses 22 through 24 gives us what? It gives us the lens or the framework that we can understand the passage through. All stories begin with context. I want you to think of your favorite movie. How does your favorite movie begin? With context. As a child, right, my favorite movie growing up was the Star Wars, okay? I was probably just like every other kid my age, alright? I loved the old school Star Wars. Not so much the new ones, but the old school ones, right? And how does every Star Wars movie begin? Yeah, y'all could probably quote it. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. What is that, what are those words doing? It's giving me the context. It's, it, what it's doing is it's literally transporting me to a different galaxy and giving me the framework and the lens when I see this story to actually understand it properly. It gives me the framework. Verses 22 to 24 give us the framework to understand what is really going on in this passage. And if you notice with me, there are four pieces of context in these three verses. Number one, if you notice the very first phrase, it is the Greek is meta. Tata, and it says, after these things. We often skip over a phrase like this, but what is that phrase doing? It's, it's, it's a temporal marker. It's marking the time. It's telling me that what is about to occur has happened after Nicodemus. So there's some indefinite period of time between Genesis, or John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, and John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Notice the second piece of context. Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. So Jesus goes from Jerusalem with Nicodemus to the land of Judea. Judea is a region, is a section of the nation of Israel. It's the southern part of Israel. Notice the third piece of context. I want you to notice this one. And John was also baptizing. 
I'll tell you why that's important here when we get to verse 25 and 26. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. So Jesus is outside of Jerusalem in the area of the country called Judea and John the Baptist is in Anon near Salim. Now where is that? Most scholars believe that is in Samaria, which is in the middle part of the nation of Israel. So you have Jesus is in Judea, southern part, which will be very important when we come into John chapter 4. John the Baptist is in Samaria. And then notice the fourth piece of context. It says, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. The author of this gospel is using this little phrase for two main reasons. Number one, as a temporal marker, it's giving us the timing of the story that it comes in between after when Nicodemus was with Jesus and before John was thrown into prison. But it, but it also gives us a second piece of information. It, it's a piece of foreshadowing. It's telling us what is to come, that John will be thrown into prison. If you remember that story, he's thrown into prison and Herod has him beheaded because of a request of a little girl who danced really well. So if you notice the context and then notice the conflict, verse 25, therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan. Who are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. To whom you have testified. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. What's the problem with that statement, right? Well, it says that all are coming to him. But what does it say in verse uh, 23 and 20, verse 23? It says, John was also baptizing near Anon and Salim. So wait a second. So John's disciples are saying that all our people are coming to Jesus, but in reality, they're not all coming to Jesus, but some are being baptized by John the Baptist. Now, I want to make a quick exegetical note. If you see in your original language, it says, therefore, there arose a discussion. I want to talk about that word discussion. The English for that word discussion is rather tame, or I would say rather lame as well. Because based in the original language, this word discussion, the Greek word is used, I believe, only eight times in the New Testament. And it's used in other contexts. It means a furious fight, an anger, an argument, right? It's actually the same word that describes Paul and Barnabas' heated debate when they split ways, if you remember that story. So John's disciples are fighting and debating amongst one another, and what is the conflict? What are they saying? They're saying that Jesus is baptizing more than John. John's baptizing, it's clear, in verse 23 but what are they really saying to John? They're saying that, that Jesus guy, whom you testified about, is baptizing more than you. Can I just put their conflict in today's terms? John's disciples go up to John and they basically say this, that Jesus' church is bigger than yours. That's really what they're saying. That Jesus' ministry, that Jesus' church, in a sense, is bigger than yours. And they're having a shouting match about it. (laughs) I would imagine we've all had shouting matches about how we compare to other people. 
if you were John the Baptist, how would you react to their plea? How would you react to their debate? If someone came up to you and said that that guy over there has a bigger house than you or has a better head, head of hair, okay, there are a lot of people with that, uh, that guy over there has a nicer car, or that lady is prettier, or their children go to a better school, or their kids are more well-behaved. And if someone came up to you and compared you to another person, how would you be tempted to respond? Your response would reveal something about what you value. I could tell you my first reaction if someone came up to me and said, you know, that, that church down the road is bigger than yours. I would be tempted to respond, well, they probably water down the truth, or they are in a growing neighborhood, right? We've all probably said that before, something like that. But that kind of response of not, of actually comparing, it it, it signals to me not only comparison, but our own insecurity. Can Can I just step on toes this morning? I'm just, man, today's sermon's burning, step on some toes, I'm sorry. We only become prideful and insecure when we compare ourselves to others. Can I just say that again? We only become prideful and insecure when we compare ourselves to others. I want you to think about the Garden of Eden. Think about Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. How does the serpent tempt Eve? He gets her to compare herself with who? With God, right? That is the original kind of temptation that the serpent whispers in the mind of Eve that you do not quite measure up to God. What does he say? He says, for, in, for God knows that in the day that you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Comparison is the enemy of humility and comparison is the catalyst of pride. I'll say that again. Comparison is the enemy of humility, and comparison is the catalyst of pride. But I find John the Baptist's response to his disciples that Jesus' church is bigger, I I find it amazing, because how does he respond? He responds with three things, but I'm not going to tell you quite yet. The the cancer of comparison was uh, prevalent in seminary. As most of you know, I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, and there was a a disease that eroded the spirituality of all of God's servants there. Comparison and pride deteriorated our hearts. Seminary students were uh, very vastly insecure. We all had... (laughs) I wish you could go to seminary for like a week so you could understand what it is like. Uh, but we all, so we're all, what I call this, the, we all try to be the biggest minnow in the smallest pond, okay? Because all you have, you're all very insecure because you have all these really smart guys, that your professors that you admire and you love, and they have written vast volumes of books that you've probably read since you were a child. And so you have all of these seminary students, these people that want to serve God, and their spirituality is, is eroded by their desire and their temptation to compare with one another and trying to find significance. We all try to be the biggest minnow in the smallest pond. We all try to one-up one another. I remember some stories. There was one guy who tried to find significance by saying to me that he was training to run a marathon in the Olympics, but uh, someone forgot to tell him that he could file for Social Security. (laughs) One guy found pride in translating the entire New Testament from 
Greek into English, even though we have enough. One guy started a podcast. One guy self-published a book. One guy benched 425 pounds. And we all nicknamed him Lou Ferrigno. And I had my own certain measures. I remember when I went off to seminary, I, I wanted to work a lot. I wanted to make good grades because I wanted to get a Ph.D. one day. I wanted to cram a four-year degree into three and a half years just to prove I could. When we compare ourselves to others to try to justify how spiritual we are, or how much we are valued, or how important we are, when God saw the seminary students, how we compared ourselves to one another, you know what God probably said to all of that? Vomit. Because what are we making spirituality? What are we making the Christian life about? We're making it about me and not about him and his greatness and proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. When we compare with other people, we are trying to make ourselves valuable in, in, in everything else besides what God has called us we are valuable in. Comparison is the enemy of humility and the catalyst of pride. It is impossible to remain humble if we compare ourselves to others. If we compare our waistline, our bank account, our job, our GS level, our car, our house, our hair, our church, our children, as long as we are comparing ourselves to other people, it is impossible to remain humble. How do we remain humble? Remain humble by point number one, by resisting comparisons. If you have your notes. By resisting comparisons. Because go back to the text with me real, real quick. John's disciples come to John and they basically say that Jesus' church is bigger. But what's interesting is they, they, they say that all people are coming to him. What, what are they doing? They're looking past the fruit in the ministry that they are having because people are coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. But because they're so consumed with pride and with comparing their own importance to the importance of Jesus that they miss what God is actually doing through them. But we are so guilty of the same. That we look, we look at the size of our Sunday school class, we look at the size of our church or the size of our work, the size of our business, and we are so ungrateful because we compare ourselves to other people. But what should we do instead, instead of trying to find our value in the world, instead of finding our value in the size of our wallet, we should find value in what God has done. Notice how John counters their conflict. Notice verse 27. It's beautiful. He counters their conflict with three things. John the Baptist answered and said to him, said to them, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent, been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase and I must decrease. How does John respond to his disciples and their thought that Jesus' church is bigger? Instead of making excuses, instead of being depressed, instead of... Uh, trying to find a way to justify themselves, John the Baptist rather places his value in God. 
He realizes that all of the provisions and purposes and the presence of God are blessings from God. They're all His. They're not, they're all His, not His. There's no room to boast that all of His earthly possessions, that His ministry, the size of His effectiveness, is all because of God's grace and God's glory. And we should be the same. That we should not place value in what other people think about us, but in what God has said about us. How do we remain humble? Point number one is resisting comparisons. And point number two is remembering to place our value in God. Can I, can I just say something really quick? We care. We care way too much what other people think. Can I get a name into that one? We care way too much what other people think. We should care what he thinks. We compare ourselves way too much to others. We should rather find our significance in what he says. And this is exactly what John the Baptist does here. We would be so tempted to find an excuse for why we do not measure up, and instead John finds his value in three things. Notice the first one in verse 27. It says, and John answered and said, a man can receive nothing. Notice that word, nothing. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from above. John finds his value in God's provisions. He has nothing to boast about. Because everything that he has, all the ministry he has, all the blessings he has been given, have been given to him by God. Since God has given it to him, he has no room to boast, no room to be depressed or anxious or sad about how he does not measure up. The moment we realize that our stuff is really God's stuff, then the temptation of comparison, the temptation of pride recedes. Because when we see God's blessings as God's, we will be less concerned how they measure up to other people and more concerned about how to use his blessings for God's glory. John finds his value in God, in God's provisions, but then notice the second piece. He says, I am not the Christ. That word Christ is meaning Messiah, the anointed one. I am not the Christ, but... I have been sent ahead of him. John finds his value in God's provisions, but also in God's purpose for his life. What is John the Baptist's purpose? He says that that I have been sent ahead of him. That John the Baptist's purpose is to be the messenger to prepare the way. That is predicted in Isaiah chapter 40. That John's purpose is all of God's purpose. That his purpose in life is to serve and to prepare the way for the Messiah, for the Savior of the world. Since John's ministry is God's provision, and since John's purpose is given to him by God, then there is no reason to get bent out of shape. There is no reason to compare with anyone. There is no reason to be prideful. I find John the Baptist's testimony in this passage just mind-numbing, just awe-inspiring. Because so many of us would not respond in the way that he does. Because John the Baptist is not perfect. One of the things I love about the Bible is that there is only one perfect being in the entire book. Because here in just a few chapters, we see John's own insecurity and his own doubts. 
What I love about John the Baptist is that he displays an example for all of us to follow, that in a world full of pride, in a world full of comparison, and trying to one-up and be good enough, John washes the temptation away, and he says, I don't want to place my value in the world finds valuable. I rather find value in God, in his provisions, and in his purpose for my life. Let me ask you the question, what is your purpose in life? You know you're ecumenical, you, you know your church, all Christians' purpose is basically to love God and love others and make disciples, yes. But let me just ask you the question, simple question, what is your spiritual gift? How has God designed you? Serve it, use it, exercise it. God has given you a purpose in this life, exercise it. And don't worry about how it measures up to other people. There was a pastor that I knew well, talking about purposes. I, I, there was a pastor I knew well in the past, and uh, he used to proclaim all the time that his dream was to see a disciple-making church. His dream was to see a disciple-making church. His dream was to see a disciple-making church. And I can hear his voice ringing in my ears at this very moment. What's the problem with that statement? That it shouldn't be his dream to see a disciple-making church. It should be his dream, his purpose, that all the things that we do in life should be to glorify him and him alone. And let's just be real. He, God deserves it. God deserves all of our praise, all of our all of us giving him glory, he deserves all of it. Why? Because he has redeemed us and he has bought us through the cross of Jesus Christ and he has done more. Your purpose is his purpose. Your possessions are his possessions and your dreams should be his dreams. We are far more concerned with I. That is our favorite word that we use. is scientifically proven. I. We are far more consumed with I than we are for him. And I'll just say it this way. I believe that we would be far happier and far more effective for Jesus Christ if we got our eyes off of I and onto him. So John the Baptist does not compare. He, he stays humble by finding his value in God and God's provisions and God's purposes. But then notice the third thing he does in verses 29 through 30. He who has the bridegroom is the, he has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. How do we remain humble? This is my complete point. If you have your notes, remain humble by resisting comparison, remembering to place our value in God, in God's provisions, in His purposes, and in His presence. Now, who is the friend, and who is the bride, and who is the bridegroom? I'm going to pause on that for just a second. I'm going to kind of give you a little bit TMI. If you've been here for any length of time, then you know that I like to give TMI. That means too much information. I want to make a distinction real quick. Can I hop it on a rabbit trail? Somebody called it one of my parentheticals, okay? Um, I asked him what was that when, I, when he said that word. Okay, so, uh, so I want to make a quick distinction. That a, lot of, a lot of scholars in John chapter 2, when the wedding of Cana, they take that story to be figurative, right? But 
that was, in my opinion, a literal story with a literal meaning, and it was has a literal understanding. There, there was a wedding in Cana. Let's not rip it out of context and call it all allegory. But here is different. This wedding scenario, this wedding party ceremony, is clearly allegory. Why? Because there's no bride there, there's no groom there, and there's no friend. Well, there is a friend. So let's ask the question real quick. Who is the bride, who is the bridegroom, and who is the friend in verse 29? The bride, I would say, most scholars would agree with me, that the bride is Christ, the bridegroom is Jesus, but who is the friend? The friend is John the Baptist, right? What does he say about the friend? But the friend, John, of the groom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, so this joy of mine has been made full. But this allegory really doesn't make a lot of sense because we're 21st century Americans and our weddings are very different than the weddings of the first century Jewish nature. Uh, My wife made me promise not to share two TMI, okay? But to kind of give you an idea of what happens at a Jewish wedding in this time period is that they would celebrate the wedding ceremony. And then after the wedding ceremony, while people are celebrating, the groom and the bride would go into the bridal chamber and consummate the marriage. And then clearly, the friend of the bride, or friend of the groom would stand outside of the bridal chamber, listening and for the joy of the groom. Now, I will not share more because we are in mixed company. If you want more, just I will give you a fantastic article that I read about it. Okay. But John the Baptist here is the friend. What I love about that is that even though the bride and the groom are the ones that benefit from the union, that the friend still celebrates the joy of the groom. That John is being so selfless that he does not care about his own greatness, his own joy, his own happiness, but he completely serves Jesus Christ and to give him glory. Friends, most of us are like my uh, two-year-old Olivia. If you have ever seen that little girl, she is a walking disaster like her old man. Uh, but whenever, whenever you try to take something from Olivia, my two-year-old, she scowls at you and she says, mine. That's us. The Lord has given us possessions and provisions and purposes And the Lord, we should all be living a life that is solely for glorifying and being obedient to the Father. But so many times we are so consumed with, it is mine. But it's not. That all of the possessions, all of the privileges that we have as Christians are to his credit and to his glory and to his fame. Notice the conclusion of our story in verse 30. This is is the point or conclusion he, Jesus, must increase. That word increase is grow. It means kind of is used as tree growing. His ministry must increase, but I must decrease. I must lessen. The conclusion of the story is that Jesus would grow and would flourish and that everything would be for his glory and for his fame and that John the Baptist is merely a friend. He's merely an observer rejoicing at the completeness and fruition of Jesus' will. Now, with all that said, uh, one of the 
blessings and cursings of being a preacher by trade is uh, that I, I live under constant conviction. And if I don't live under conviction, then I need to stop preaching. Because this week I was sitting at my bed, I was rocking my uh, four-year-old daughter to sleep, and I was thinking about the issue of comparing ourselves to other people, how we try to measure up and how we try to find our value in things that do not matter squat. And that we should find value in what God has done and what God has purposed us to do and in His presence and in His glory. I was thinking about how, who, who, this comparison issue. And then I was sitting there on the bed on Thursday night and the Lord popped a face into my mind of a person I like to compare myself to. And his name is Zach. I have a friend named Zach that I went to seminary with and we uh, secretly compared and competed over everything. He was very driven like me. He worked a lot in seminary like I did. He graduated with honors. So did I. He graduated with a four-year degree in three and a half years. He did. So did I. We both came, became pastors of churches at young ages. So did, so did I. I guess we said we both. We both loved Settlers of Catan. Can I get an amen to that one? Anybody like a Settlers of Catan on that one? Okay. Cities and Nights is where it's at. Okay. I'm just telling you. Okay. So we competed over that. We were both equal in talent. We were both athletically built. But this, this week I realized something. I, I haven't seen this guy. I haven't spoken to him personally in years. But I still look at his Facebook page. And I don't look at his Facebook page to see how long his beard is now, which is like this long. I, I don't look to see how well his kids are and how well his life is. I look for one thing. I look to see the size of his church. <laughs> and this is super duper convicting to me. I try to figure out how I measured up against another person, and the Lord basically, you know, I, I just see the Lord. When I look at his Facebook page and I see his church, you know what God probably says to that? Blah. Who cares? Who cares about how we measure up to other people? Who cares how we measure up to this monetary success of other people in the world? And when, I can, when we compare ourselves to other people, what are we really saying? That God's provisions aren't enough. That the purposes that God has given us aren't enough. They're not satisfactory. And what are we really saying to God in a sense that He is not enough for us? Friends, let's just, let's just have some self-awareness. Let's be aware of the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us lay it aside. And run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us have self-awareness to the sin that we have. Comparing ourselves to other people is one of those things that would rot our soul and cause us not to feel like we measure up. This week I want you to do something. This week I just want you to put a word in the back of your mind. I want you to put in your word comparison. Just put it in your mind. Just tuck it away. Just, just put the word comparison in your mind, okay? Just, just tuck it away. Because what I want you to do this week, I, th- I think this, I think so many times that we don't even realize that we compare ourselves to other people. We're so entangled in a world of consumerism, of materialism, that we don't even realize the, the satisfaction and value that we get from what from the, what the world says is valuable. So this is what I want you to put in your mind the word comparison. And then as you live this week, I want you to just think about it. Like I did on that bed on Thursday night. Who is somebody that you compare your life to? 
Who is somebody, this is my first application question, is this. Who do you secretly compare yourself to? Who do you compare the size of your waist to the size of your wallet? Who Or who do you daydream that you are? We all daydream and look at celebrities and friends. We all secretly, we call that coveting. We all secretly wish that we had something else. We all wish that we had better health or more hair or more significance. But even if we got it, even if we had the looks of Brad Pitt and the money of Bill Gates, okay, which would be a weird combination, okay, (laughs) okay, even if we had it, it would not be good enough. Instead of comparing ourselves to other people, let's just stop with the madness. Stop valuing petty things. Then when we get to heaven, we won't look back and wish we had more stuff. We will probably look back and wish that we ran the race a little bit faster. The first question is, who do we compare ourselves to? And then the second question is, where do we find value outside of God? And I'm going to give you a little bit of a nugget on this, that our, compa- what we, our comparisons reveal what we value. Can I say, our comparisons reveal what we value outside of God. If we value money, we will be consumed to how we measure up. If we value how big our church is or how big our ministry is or how long and how much hair we have. Okay, obviously, you can tell I'm insecure about that. Okay, moving on. I'm working on it. Okay, I'm imperfect. Okay, all right. If, we, <laughs> if you worry about how you measure up with your car or with your house or with your children or how many kids you have, that is where you find value outside of God almost every time. Friends, let us just find value in God. And what he has proclaimed us to be. That we are his children. And that he has made us new. That we are his new creation. That we are ambassadors for Christ. That we should be satisfied with the provisions that he has given us. We should be satisfied and we should exercise our purpose that he has given us to do. And we should rejoice in his presence. That we can walk with him every day of the week. As is my conviction, I always end my sermons with the gospel. And if I'm really transparent this morning, I'm always a bit nervous before I share for several reasons. Number one is because I feel like a lot of people that sit in pews around America and even some people here today have heard the gospel so much that it becomes this old news, but it's not old news. Um, And also some people, I'm afraid that when I get to heaven, if I get there before you do, that I'll be sitting behind the pearly gates, so to speak, and I'll see my people that that worshipped in my church for years, and then they'll come to the pearly gates, and I'll see them, and I'll go for a hug, and then Jesus says, oh, by the way, I never knew you. I hope that is not the case. This week, I was, uh, based on the recommendation of Dwight and with uh, Dustin and some of the other people that I've been talking, I watched a documentary called The American Gospel. If you haven't watched that, it is on Netflix. And a young man said that he visited 20 different churches and only one church shared the gospel when he visited. That's appalling. That is why I share the gospel 
every Sunday for the last two plus years. It's because I do not one per, one person that I visited one time to ever walk out of these doors without understanding the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel, which it means good news, really begins with the bad news. What is the bad news? That you and I are sinners, that we are imperfect. Can I get an amen to that one? And this guy up here has 25 pointing, fingers pointing back at himself. That we are all imperfect, and we call that sin, that we make mistakes, that we miss the mark. And because we are imperfect, what does that do? It separates us from a perfect God. And that because of our sin, we have two things. We have both physical death and spiritual death. We all still die, but now, because of the blood of Christ, we can now spiritually live. What is the good news? The good news is found in John 3.16, which we talked about for a couple of weeks. The good news is basically this, that God loved and God sent, right? That God loved the world. He, He saw our sin. He saw our imperfections. He saw Byron Bradshaw's mistakes and his insecurities. And he said that I love them enough to send my perfect son to die on a cross to pay the price for their sin. And what's crazy about the gospel is that it cost God the Father dearly, but it is free to us. That we cannot earn salvation. Let me make that abundantly clear. Can I say that one more time? We cannot earn our way to heaven. In that documentary, he mentioned that basically the whole story is about the health and wealth gospel. That if you love Jesus and that you do enough, that he'll give you every wish and every desire of your heart. That's egregious. The gospel is this, that you cannot earn your way to heaven, that you cannot be good enough. That is why Jesus Christ had to die. And there is only one way to heaven. Can I just be non-politically correct? Uh, Politically incorrect. There is one way to heaven. It is explicit in the scripture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot be good enough to earn your, your way to heaven. You cannot be a Muslim and earn your way to heaven. You cannot be a Hindu and earn your way to heaven. There is one way to heaven, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God that has died for your sins, then believe and you shall be saved. What does it say? For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one would boast. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, it's an honor to uh, just see your word. It's just living and it's active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It does pierce through our heart and through our soul and through our mind. And Lord, I just uh, pray that we would not be so consumed with consumerism. We would not be so consumed with being entertained or, or with what I want or with mine or with me that we would gladly usher those things aside, just like John the Baptist does, and that we would be grateful for what you have given us and that we would take what you have given us and the purposes that you have provided for us and that we would take that and glorify you to the ends of the earth. Lord, the message today was not the most um, fun to hear and was not the most politically correct in our American culture, but I really just don't care (laughs) because your word is not politically correct. It is truth. 
and is effective for our lives. Lord, I just pray that we would go, that the, the Word of God would, would cause us to move to the outer edges of the world to make your name great. And Lord, I pray that we would love God, love others, and that we would make disciples of all nations. Lord, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for those that are here. I thank you for those that are online. I pray for those online. I thank you for them. I love them. I miss them. And I just pray that you would continually protect them, that you would encourage them right where you are, that your Holy Spirit would would minister to them. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us that are here, that it would invigorate our feet to go into the world as your ambassadors with the gospel. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for Calvary Bible Church. I thank you for our uniqueness. That we're not here to entertain, but we're here to preach your word and to live lives that are glorifying to you. Lord, we're your servants. I, I pray that we would ask for forgiveness of our many, many sins. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that we serve a perfect God, and we thank you that we have a God that continually forgives for our mistakes and our sins. Be with us as we go. And I love each one of them here. I am honored to be pastor here and to do what I do, what I love to do for you living. It's amazing. And I just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.